episode of the VD Clinic. I'm your mistress, Vanessa, and with me, as always, is... Dun, 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 dun. How are you going to introduce yourself? Darren? Um, I don't know. I don't know, uh, I don't know how you I, I, say I my name. And, huh? I surprised you with that. I didn't ask you ahead of time. <laughs> this, uh... Let's see. For for this, I uh, let's see. What did you say, Mistress Vanessa? Mm -hmm. God damn it! Sorry, David. Um, Think of something French. <laughs> Daron. I am Daron Wilson. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> no stranger to handcuffs, Wilson. There we go. Um. In many ways. I've requested to be handcuffed and I've been handcuffed against my will. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. I was going to yeah. say not violently attacked, but just, you know, that one time I got arrested when I was drunk. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> I figured you were talking about the pigs. Yeah. Yes. Anywho... Um, we today are talking about the Luis Buñuel film, Belle du Jour, from 1967. And the book is, Darren, your suggestion. Ah, yes. The book was I Was a Teenage Dominatrix, a Memoir by Shauna Kenny, uh, published in 2002 is what I have. Yeah. Yes, I, uh, I, had, I actually, because I really have wanted to do this movie, but I was trying to figure out what book to do with it, and I initially thought, okay, I'll pair it with, or we would pair it with some kind of, find some weird surrealist book, <laughs> because that's how bizarre I am, but then I was like, oh no, I don't want to, um, is strange like make you put this you know put listeners like just turn them away <laughs> <laughs> although i could maybe everybody wants that i don't know uh but then i you know then i thought well then there's the novel uh from 1928 the uh belge that this was based on and so i was thinking about that and i I don't know, kind of go, we were kind of going back and forth and then you had the suggestion of this book. So, and I think in which actually I, I don't know if I told you, I started, I finished reading very quickly. Yeah. That I was a teenage dominatrix Finished reading that very quickly. And then I started reading Belle du Jour. And I think we probably made a better decision. It's not that <laughs> I'll get to this, but I'm just saying that, I think I think that it's a nice contrast, but okay. enough similarities. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, you had never read this book before, and I had never seen the movie before. Correct. Okay. Correct. Look at us. Yeah. Mm. 
Yes. So I first, well, since would I don't know if you want to do this as we get to each one in kind, but mm-hmm. since you suggested the movie and I suggested the book, do you want to say like how you came to the movie or? Um. Yeah. Sure. Um. Do I was actually going to say, do we want to take a quick break and then get into the movie and um, and then I can go on to that then or do we want to start now? I mean, it's up to you. <laughs> we might as well, since, since we've said it, we might as well do it. Okay. Let's, let's take the sure. take the quick break and be right back with Belle du Jour. Or you okay. say Belle du Jour. Yeah. <laughs> or is the guy who says everything be like he took a bunch of Spanish in high school and college. Belle de whore. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, nice. <laughs> Sorry, that. I've been up a long time. I might be a little weirder today. I haven't had enough caffeine yet, so I might be a little weirder too. So. <laughs> well, here we go. Okay. In a few minutes. In a few minutes. Be back. Hey, you, podcast listener. Yeah. Hey, listen up. Hey, shut up. (laughs) I know you're looking for new things to binge. And purge. (laughs) (laughs) Gayish is about gay stereotypes. We've talked about depression, drag queens. uh, Butt stuff. Fisting. Animals. Uh, Fisting and animals are two different episodes, (laughs) just to clarify. You can find us on iTunes or wherever podcasts are given away for free. Tell your mom. She's probably gay. <laughs> and we are back, and supposedly we've got our shit together. <laughs> um, here we are going to discuss uh, the 1967 film Belle du Jour, starring Catherine Deneuve, uh, directed by Louise Buñuel. And I, I think, Darren, didn't we decide that you would... <laughs> say the rest of the cast because both of us have really bad french pronunciation but yours seems to be a little bit better than mine okay we Uh, apologize in advance to all french speakers (laughs) um so you said catherine deneuve as uh are we we're just doing the names right we're not doing who they play well she's severin okay uh we got jean sorel as pierre cierzy michel piccoli as Henri Husson, Genevieve Page as Madame Anaï, and then Anaïs, Anaï, and Pierre Clementi <laughs> as Marcel. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and it's based on the 1928 novel by Joseph, or I don't know. Joseph? No. <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> Cassell. Cassell. Um, but, yes. <laughs> and the film was, uh, I guess, screenplay um, and adaptation was done by Buñuel himself and Jean-Claude, Jean-Claude Carrière. Car- <laughs> that, that, that. Please pronounce now. I can't speak. Where are we at? Oh, Jean-Claude Carrière. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I just am having a moment. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, it happens. I I've... told you, I, I, I told you in advance, like, and that's why I threw out my apology. I, I, I spoke, I took so many years of language in school, but it was Latin. It was Spanish. 
it was Italian and it was Russian. <laughs> it was not French. <laughs> I can't. I can't. <laughs> I don't even pretend. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, it. I often have partners who took French as languages. Uh, you know, uh, Amanda mm-hmm. took French. My last... A serious girlfriend. She also had taken French. Uh, but yeah, I most I mostly took Spanish in you know high school, and and it was my foreign language in college. Because we had a mm-hmm. foreign language requirement, which you know, um, also sign language is counted in there. But I did not do that anyway. I've immersed myself in French stuff today. Uh, mm-hmm. Not even on purpose, but I think I was telling you that uh, earlier this morning, uh, I went and saw an exhibit of Auguste Rodin, mm-hmm. uh, the French sculptor uh, from, he did most of his stuff in the late 1800s. Um, if you truly were looking at his stuff. Well, um, I'm it, just. <laughs> go ahead with your story and I'll go on my little rant. But... Well, they did talk about how he trained a lot of people and gave orders for people to make things. Or are you talking about somebody is pretending that something is by him? No, he stole other people's work. Okay. Um... <laughs> like, and said other people, like work other people did was something he did. Uh-huh. And he's credited. Yeah. A also... significant amount of work was done by his, uh, female lover yeah oh yeah they they talked about her and they talked about yeah. how he was they didn't say this first part uh, uh, about him being kind of like salvador dolly but they did talk about how he kind of sexually assaulted his models from time to time oh that's another issue but yes. um but yeah it's now it's really uh, they've talked uh, like started talking pretty openly and you know, art circles, smart mainstream art circles that, yeah, he probably stole some stuff, not just from her, but from a few other like students and things, but a lot from her. They they had some of his student stuff on on display as well. Anyway, go ahead with your story. But no, uh, so I've been reading a lot of French words today. So that probably helped me stumble my way to a C minus or a D on that uh, exam of reading the cast list. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Even though, I mean, Buñuel is Spanish. Um, Yes. But, um, so the basic, the IMDB, the IMDB quick description, and I guess this is, uh, we will have, this is bare, bare bones, but it says, their description is a frigid young housewife decides to spend her midweek afternoons as a prostitute. Oh, that is so underestimating what this film is. That is very <laughs> much simplified. I, I, I feel like even and though, what this story is. Yeah. Um, but it's like none of those things are untrue. Well, uh, true. But yeah. It's, I guess that's why people have to talk about it because you don't really get it from that. You said that's on IMDb. Yes. And I feel like IMDb and Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, 
they well they work together but i don't even know if imdb is owned by amazon yet I don't know if they've sucked that part in. Well, but. well, the thing is, is that you they have base descriptions, then they have certain things, and it depends on you. Know, and you pay memberships, and as far as like who can edit what, it's like Wikipedia to some extent. <laughs> like you have to check some of your sources. Yeah, and you have the the fancy Criterion Blu-ray with like a book. Oh yeah. And, maps and all sorts of stuff and i rented streaming the criterion version through Mm -hmm. one of the previously mentioned companies right even the uh the description of it even though they seem to be interlinked was better than that description well okay so then you go down to a more a user what looks like a user description this is on the main page of imdb a little bit better, but still, I, I still feel it undersells the movie. Oh, yeah. um, but uh, it's Severin is a beautiful young woman married to a doctor. She loves her husband dearly, but cannot bring herself to be physically intimate with him. She indulges instead in vivid, kinky, erotic fantasies to entertain her sexual desires. Eventually, she becomes a prostitute working in a brothel in the afternoons while remaining chaste in her marriage. That's a, that's it, got a bit more meat on its bones. Right, but I still think it undersells it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the movie kicks off with, you know, uh, I think the first time I watched this, I thought it was actually happening. Okay, so so let okay we let's go back to this was your first time watching it. Yes. Okay, and how many times did you watch it in preparation? Twice. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. So, yeah, the first. I mean, we are obviously going to talk about details of this movie and this book. Mm -hmm. Um, you know. I forget what she says, but then he just says, do what I told you. And his coachman drag her out into the woods and string her up on a tree and whip her with a horse whip. But, you know, her life with the, you know, the, I forget his name. Pierre. Pierre. Uh, You know. He looks like a Ken doll. (laughs) Yeah, uh, cast for... that way to on a very much on purpose. Yeah, yeah. Tell me. Well, no, to to have this very specific look of. I mean, he. Well, go ahead. Continue with what you're saying. Well, also, anyway, you thought this was really happening, is what you're saying. You didn't realize it was. Yes, a fantasy. I, I, it was. Yeah. It was the the second fantasy when i said wait a second now i'm not saying i was totally (laughs) clear-headed while watching this film i was today but the first time i oh i don't think it helps i don't think it helps truthfully if it's your first time seeing it i could totally see where you would be confused yeah so but anyway her her life is split up into her fantasies and her reality and i will tell you you got it you got it the right way because in like there's an interview with the uh, in the with this screenwriter um, Carrere, 
that, you know, he's like, no, we actually wrote the screenplay and filmed it so that those fantasies, those erotic dream sequences, we filmed it like that was reality. And that these scenes of Severn at, you know, out on holiday or at home with Pierre leading their bourgeois life, that's actually a fantasy. That's not reality. You know, where it, they're technically the reverse, but that's not the way that they filmed it. Yeah. So that's what, you know, and it's, and, and then, then this world that you have of the brothel and where she exists there is kind of in between. Which, right on, I mean, yeah. yeah. I will get more into, but <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm saying, but no, I think, I mean, you got it in the fact that like, it made sense that since they filmed it that way, you, it, it made sense without consciously making sense. Yeah. For for real, you know, I, uh, and I, I took maybe not a, a, less than a handful or of uh, film classes in college. So I, I know I have heard of this director before. I've never uh, checked out this film before, but from my, what I, you know, I, I don't watch what? French movies the same way I watch American movies. If this well, was an American I... movie, I would have to expect that they're not showing me anything that I have to think of in a metaphysical way. Uh, anyway, what? Um, no, I, I was going to ask if you had seen any other Buñuel films. Yeah, um, let's see. I mean, Unshan Angelou is, like, one of his probably other, like, most famous film, other than this. This is the one, like, Belle de Jour is the one where he actually was his big commercial success. That was later in his career, his first film which was actually co-written by Salvador Dali was Unshan Angelou I mean this is someone who is a real surrealist director and here Belle du Jour comes out at a point where he's made kind of a shift in his life and in his career but also he's still it's still very much surrealist and if you read the book it doesn't have these fantasy sequences. It kind of, it's open. It, it lends itself though to them. They're, they're like little hints and nods, different places where it feels like they could be interjected. Like you could just imagine it on your own as the reader. You know, even if you didn't have this film in context. So, but, so it works that when these producers were trying to get this film made and nobody wanted to make it and finally ended up with Buñuel, he kind of saw an opportunity of, okay, he recognized that, okay, there's not that much there and it could be dismissed and could as like a trashy novel and could be a totally trashy film if it's was directed by someone else, but he, by interjecting all these different fantasy sequences, 
and this surrealist reality. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it 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 um it expanded it and turned it into something much more meaningful and much more interesting. Because really, these could have been such three, I mean, like two dimensional characters. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and when you read the book, it's, it's not that they're completely two dimensional, but they're definitely not as you don't you don't feel as developed. I mean, it's also a very short novel. I haven't finished it yet. I know it differs in the end. I mean, this tech, this film technically has two endings, kind of, <laughs> you know, but, and we're kind of left. That's one of the things that ends up being kind of a mystery. There's so many things here in this film, like what's in the box? Why does the professor ne- need that inkwell? You know, that are mysteries. Like <laughs> we, you know, we're not spoon fed every single detail. And that's, I think the difference of coming from a European director you know, you know, come rather than an American director, even at that time, even Hollywood at that time and their indie scene still would have spoon fed it a little bit more than some others, you know, but yeah. And this was, I'm what I, I think, uh, Buñuel's first movie came out in some, sometime around 1928 or 1929, 29. Sean Angelou was 29. Yeah, so that this is f- basically forty years after. Yeah, after that, right? And like I said, I mean, if you look at him as a surrealist artist, because he was a significant part of surrealist cinema in the nineteen. 19- that last end of the the twenties and into the thirties. I mean, which is when we really, I mean, like surrealism is considered as existing, although of course it, ex, it has ex, expanded on into later years. And when you did have artists like Buñuel who continued working for many decades more, you know, they, it, of course it's still, most of them at least it's still going to be in their works to some extent it's just maybe it's going to you know maybe just morphs into something else but maybe not it depends on which artist it specifically is but um and then sometimes you know it morphs into something else along the way you know uh i I, surrealism (laughs) you're kind of okay rein me in rein me in um so many puns there considering these fantasy sequences. <laughs> so yeah, there's there are riding crops, there are horse whips. I mean, this is um from where in chronologically in the movie we've basically just had the the very beginning and then I feel like the next stage of the film is when they're at the ski resort. Yeah, they're on um they're on the, the like couples like the the holiday or whatever and she they see uh, Renee and um Husson. Yeah. And that's when she finds out that what one of her friends works 
Oh, no, that's after they, right after they return from there. Oh, is that right after that? No, she, yeah, because she ends up seeing Renee again when they get back to the city. Okay. Yeah, but it's shortly thereafter. So the, the she, next... She had, um, she had a, um... Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think she had the, another fantasy after that. I'm just trying to think chronologically. <laughs> yeah. And oh, it's... so I, it's a, one thing I, you, I, I forgot to answer. You asked me when I first saw this. Yeah. So I, I first saw this in 1995. It, Martin Scorsese actually spearheaded the restoration of this film and it was released in theaters and I had just heard that he was had spent all this money restoring this film by surrealist, you know, uh, director Luis Buñuel. And, you know, it starred Catherine Deneuve, which I was like, I'm sold. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like, <laughs> um, I have a weak spot for Catherine Deneuve. And um, so... It just, I, I was like, okay, I knew nothing about this movie <laughs> going into it. And I just, I had had a really horrible day. I was very depressed and I decided I was going to the movies by myself. And I ended up at this little independent theater in Cincinnati and saw this movie. I had, like I said, no idea what it was about. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. That is a, okay. yeah, that, that is a, a fancier story than but you, you picked this movie for us to talk about in July. So I rented it on my Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, and, and all, and, you know, I had actually seen Buñuel films before other ones, like earlier ones. So that's why I was excited too. <laughs> And I had seen Catherine Deneuve and other things. So those were two big draws for me. And yeah. It's a definitely. winning combination for you because you obviously suggested we talk about it. Well, and then, I mean, and then when you get into the story, I mean, because truthfully, in any, in so much of surrealism, because of the way it is intertwined of finding this world of, you know, the conscience and subconscious and kind of where they collide. And, you know, instead of like trying to make sense of things like a lot of the psycho, like Freud and a lot of the psycho analysis, you know, analysts were doing at that time, they were, you know, they were fascinated by looking into dreams and, and trying to get tap into that subconscious, but they weren't, they were just like, no, we are con perfectly content with just exploring and exploiting the subconscious. We don't have to know why this is this way. We don't have to find a solution, you know, it, and iron out all the messy details, you know, if we don't, if there's something that we don't like or whatever. And, it's there's and I've always found that 
those ideas fascinating and exploring kind of where dreams and reality meet. How can you reconcile sides of yourself or sides of your brain and, and things like that. So that's part of why surrealist art has always appealed to me. And it probably is the biggest influence on my own artwork that I've produced on um, like paintings and uh, costume and clothing designs that I've done. Uh, so I'm, yeah, so I'm a little, <laughs> I, I really started, I, I always get excited when I, you know, I watch something like this where I'm like, Oh, I'm, this is just like, this is my element, but it, um, and you know, of course I have to point out the clothing in here. Um, specifically the fact that, and really it, it ties to some issues that are dealt with here. Um, but you have specifically Catherine Deneuve's wardrobe. She is wearing like Isla Lorraine, like couture clothing for that time period, which, you know, was a very, you know, it, it's that very much that indicator of wealth and her shoes and, and her jacket and other jackets are a specific couture of that time and they were done for you know her for specifically for this film and you see one thing that uh, many of the surrealists did but Buñuel particularly he brought in these issues of class which this book does anyway brings in the issues of class and and so that in like you look at the first you fantasy sequence, the opening fantasy sequence of the film, where, yes, it is in part under orders of Pierre, the husband, but the coachmen, you know, the servants, are, they are the ones who are in return, be, you know, they are whipping the, the symbol of the bourgeoisie. You know, the person who is of a certain class above them. And so it's kind of turning his nose up, you know, at that. And you hear these, you it, it kind of comes up at, at these different points throughout the film as well. And like I said, it's in the story itself of, of course, Severin comes from a different social class because she's married to the surgeon you know, so when she's in the brothel and with uh, Charlotte and uh, the other, oh, Matilda, Matilda, um, you know, they're commenting about like how fine and like good, like what quality her clothing is. And, and so I think it's a very crucial detail to have in this film, you know, I don't know. I'm, you know, that's why I'm pointing out the clothes this time. Not because honestly, I'm like in love with them or anything, except for oh, I do love some of these like leather jackets in here. I mean, really, that patent leather one. Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty styling. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty styling. I dig that. But, <laughs> but, and I mean, they, it's interesting. They have, you see a lot of furs in here too. Um, and it's partly a way that these themes from these fantasy sequences, you can see where an element or something has carried over into Severin's um, daily life with Pierre, you know, what is, what we're supposed to think is actual reality, yeah. you know, the, the whole, the, what's the reliability level of this narrator? Oh, of course, of course. And the fact, like I said, that you have a director and director slash screenwriter and other screenwriter who you know, wrote this and looked at this for, and purposely filmed it from a point of view that these fantasies, these quote unquote fantasies were reality. It, it, everything is topsy turvy. And then somehow Belle du jour and that world of the brothel is the, the only world that makes sense. It's like the only time where Severin seems to be at home. Like, truly comfortable. She laughs there. She smiles there. Like, at first, of course, it's like, it's being forced. And she's being told that she has to do this. Putting and, on airs. Right. Um, because she comes into it with simultaneous disgust and attraction to the situation. Because this is an examination of a female masochist who does not know how to embrace her her identity as a masochist like and it and this is made and maybe if it were made if it had been made or written post kind of lgbt kind of stonewall like liberation where we started seeing like more like leather communities being open you know <laughs> and just in that kind of thing like and seeing leather pride and <laughs> stuff like that like maybe it would be a totally different thing for her but she can't she can't say she can't be happy and embrace that and and i want to note that the name severin her character name is the female version of the is the of the masochist well hero in the book Venus and Furs, um, which actually I can't pronounce the author's last name. He is Austrian anyway. Um, but we get the word masochism from his name. So I think it when this book was written, you know, it is a you know, it is an absolute it, there's no denying that this entire story is a nod to Venus and Furs, and this is a story of a female masochist. That is one heck of a name, the author of Venus and Furs. Leopold von Sacher I pronounce it totally the wrong way. He's Austrian-German. Leopold von Sacher-Massage? I'll go with Sacher-Massage, but I'm fucking that up. Anyway. Anyway, yes. 
you get you get what I'm saying though. Um, right. The um other side of where we get yes. His name is however you say sadomasochist after you've been punched in the face three times. <laughs> right, I guess. It's, and I after know. you invoke the name of the Marquis de Sade first, right. <laughs> 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 yeah, I get it. <laughs> Linguistics. Woohoo. <laughs> um but so you know, I, I, I thought I think that I I always I like I, I enjoyed that and and uh that kind of little like thing and and I like that it was something that was in the book, even though I would have totally believed that Bunyal came up with that on his own. Because like he does little plays on you know, words and and, and different like you know, all that kind of thing. And like and there's there's one scene like one fantasy scene for instance where you see um it's it's at the ski lodge and it's Husan and uh Severine in the front of the table he breaks of the bottle they proceed, a, bro- a bottle they proceed to go under the table supposedly to have some sort of sexual and fun <laughs> with whatever. Um, I don't want to think about the broken bottle, but anyway, um, anyway, and then you see Renee and Pierre sitting at the, t- you know, at still sitting at the other side of the round, this round table and carrying on the conversation at the, t- as the table is shaking from the other two underneath having hanky panky. Um, you see, you know, you kind of see there this, there's a something said about lily seeds and belle de jour is also a french name for a day lily so so it's not just it's not just linguistic the pure translation of you know like you know woman of the afternoon or day which you know where you break up belle de jour you know yeah, but the she, actual she's like she's not there ever at night, and that's the joke. Right, of it. right, exactly. Which that's something from the book, but to add in the script in this fantasy sequence, this line about the you know the lily seeds, it it brings it in, you know this kind of thing into this like okay this life at the brothel starting to now invade this fantasy life. Um. Just like her real life with Husan actually showing up at the brothel. I mean, he doesn't, he says he doesn't know she works there, but, you know, yeah, they've just, got, does they've he got know? the same friends, <laughs> don't right? they? Right, does he know? I mean, that's it's a question. Maybe, maybe not. Both, there are arguments for both, in my opinion. It's there are many things in this. Like I said, there are many things here in this movie that are mysteries, uh, you know, and many, and there are many things that Buñuel himself included in the film that he didn't have answers for, because he, in true surrealist fashion, didn't. He's like, no, just don't stop asking why. Just accept that it is, and. I started, I was, I, I was, I was listening to, to someone talk about this and, 
and I've, you know, had been on whatever into all my art history courses and knew all this stuff before. But in one of the criterion extras, someone was talking about kind of that, that whole concept. And I was kind of laughing to myself and I'm like, oh no, that's kind of reminds me of like different things I've done in my life with friends of mine or acquaintances where I remember the first time after I watched Mulholland Drive, uh, David Lynch, <laughs> many questions of his entire, his entire film, you know, filmography, you know, every bit of his visual, like photography, everything. There's some, there's always something, some question that may pop up. We know this, but so I'm with a friend, a couple of friends, including one friend who went to film school, but which doesn't mean anything. But anyway, one of them says, what happened? I don't get it. Could you explain what happened to me? I, I, I have so many questions. And I was like, it made perfect sense to me because I stopped asking why. I just accepted the, I just accepted that sometimes you don't know the answer to everything and you don't need to know the answer to everything. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> It's like her, her fantasy life bled into her real life, causing real blood, which made her escape into her fantasy life again about having a real life. Right, right. Yeah, and and what is brilliant was brilliantly executed to me in this film is that you have all of these elements that are bleeding into one another and you kind of get lost in there's not there are very few smooth transitions between these elements of you know the the fantasy the you know housewife reality and then the you know bel de jour brothel reality or whatever it, it it's it's this kind of you have these film like they're different there's film thing like scenes that are, they're in like images in like superimposed upon each other. So it's like one scene like dissolving into another almost and the way certain transitions are um, particularly like near the end. And then you'll hear or you'll hear a character speaking to Severine before you see them come into the scene not just in frame, but even in the scene. And and so it's like it's already something is in her head. She's blurring these lines. It's like turns into Jacob's Ladder for her, <laughs> you know, where she's got all these lines of, you know, reality and fantasy and this in-between purgatory, whatever you want to call it, whatever blurred in her head. And if you want to break it down into Freudian terms – which not all surrealists bought into that, but it kind of, I mean, to some extent, I mean, not strictly, but you can see it's still, it, it, there, it's just this element, this elemental concept of threes. If you bring it to Freudian terms, you know, you talk about your super ego, ego and id. So it, it could maybe be read that way. But you can also see it 
is there a connection somehow to like the triple goddess or the Holy Trinity, you know, that kind of thing. And if you're, you know, bringing it into some sort of religious or spiritual terms, you know, there, there's these, there are these just different elements. And I think really, again, the surrealists, they recognize that there's not just a duality. Sometimes, most of the time, there's this other place. There's the Twilight Zone. No. <laughs> but do you know what I'm saying? It's just there's something outside of where we, what we think is dream and what we think is reality. And, you know, it, it, it kind of is that, that, I had pulled up actually, there's a Frida Kahlo quote that, um, sorry, I took a lot of notes about this, but there's a Frida Kahlo quote that really got, cause I, that I, I kind of got started thinking about as just kind of the perfect way to express this. I guess Frida Kahlo being surrealist, starting is starting her career at the same time that Buñuel did and you know she always she was like I never paint dreams or na- or nightmares I paint my own reality and it was this concept of I'm pulling in these different worlds and I'm blurring these lines what you may see as this one way is something else to another person and so, you know, and sometimes there are elements of one world that invades the other. And you know, it, it was it was always that kind of that concept of, uh, all you know, how are we sure are we sure of what is reality? Because sometimes horrible things happen in real life. You know what I mean? There really because look at this movie and look at this story. It it doesn't. There's not a really hap, They're not a happy ending. No. You know. Multiple endings, if you want to say, because I don't think I think it's ambiguous to some extent. Um, I don't know about the book. I haven't I, I didn't finish it, but uh, I, I don't know. Um, sorry, Darren, I'll, I'll I'll stop. I'll let I'll come up from air for air and let you speak. <laughs> No, that's fine. Up. I've I've actually been speaking more than this. more than I thought I would uh, at this point in the conversation um yeah i i mean i get we're we're kind of avoiding talking about the endings just in case you know Mm -hmm. that's that's like the go ahead well let's well let's before we kind of get there like let's kind of talk about some of the journey along the way because i wanted to see what did you find kind of interesting about basically the journey we see here. Um, I because know. I mean, it, it, and you know, and I, and I wanted to also just like, is there something you wanted to comment? Yeah. Is there something you found interesting about any of the clientele or comments that you wanted to make about some of them? I mean, it, I got, it, it was, it was interesting seeing the, the one guy that had the bell, which triggered her, flashback to one of her fantasies which makes you think if that's part of her fantasy also well it 
it's interesting that there's there's like no music in this movie at all, but yet there's a very distinct uh, soundtrack, like score more, I guess. Uh, it's a, a score. It's a it, it, because it's sound design. It, it's these it's these bells. You, you have so many different kind. You hear different kinds of bells throughout and chimes throughout the movie, in the fantasies and in reality. And then yes, with the Asian man with the mysterious buzzing box at the you know brothel, he then brings out the little uh like temple bells is what it looks like to me. Yeah, I'll go with that. That's what they look like to me that he has. Like he's doing he's like he looks like he's doing a ritual is really what this reminds me of. Which kind of is I mean, I, I would imagine that well that guy was a regular, so it it was his ritual. Even even if it was just going to the brothel. Right. That's something that he continues doing and it did show that there were quite a few different guys the professor i think is that mm-hmm. is that what yeah he, he was called with the the one that was the gynecologist yeah now i want to i want to ask you did you cash they're like yeah he did some really famous surgeries so i want to ask you do you think it was a gender confirmation surgery that he was doing I'm just thinking the time period, if he was working in the, like, say something he did in the 50s or 60s, he could have done, you know, groundbreaking, because uh, Christine Jorgensen, you know, you know, you came out, I think that was the, what, 40s? Was that the 50s, maybe? I think, I think it was the 50s. With that, that um, with her operation. So. Have, have you got yeah. to the point? Of that character in the book. Because no, if, it, if that's a not. character from the book, then it's a doctor that did some very famous surgeries in the 20s. Well, but it, it, well, it could have said something. They could have also said something different. I don't think I have seen him yet. No. I'm just to the part reading about um, Mr. Adolphe, uh, Madame, uh, Monsieur Adolphe. Her first guy the candy you know businessman Mm -hmm. okay yeah Yeah. i think i think the uh professor is second or third right um second anyway yeah it is fun to think about um we we had mentioned marcel the (laughs) well and i find and, and and i find it interesting about the Asian man, he's got this mysterious buzzing box and he opens it to um, Matilda and she looks at it and looks at him and shakes her head. No. Like, so I, you know, you're kind of like, okay, she's a seasoned professional and she's like, no, I'm not going to do that shit. <laughs> like, but yet it's something that does not scare, you know, Belle de Jour. Yeah, I don't know. That's uh, and we'll we'll get into it when we're talking about the book for the episode. But I, they, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of ladies doing the same job. They won't all do the same thing. Well, of course, absolutely. No, everyone's got to have their limits. Totally. 
but um but it's just it's very it's just interesting that here if you look at it that is actually Belle de Jour's her only her technically her second trick because she doesn't finish with the professor he dismisses her oh that's right so she's only in there for like a minute so she doesn't really have him you just like you deserve to be you should be working in the kitchen or something like yeah, that yeah exactly that what that's her? what he says to her yeah and it's interesting that these these uh, lines or the that of humiliation that she hears in these fantasies like you, like you see for for at the for instance like at the very beginning of the movie where i think it's the coachman call her a little slut or a tramp something like that i think both both maybe anyway it and and they say something else they use another phrase um something about you need to know how to be handled something like that and that both of those things are said to Belle de jour like that time that first time with her working with um Monsieur uh, Adolphe. It's like her fantasy is all of a sudden crossing into her reality. Like that moment. Hmm. And that, yeah. And is that a sense, is that a liberating point for her? Um, that's, that's what the question too is about this whole scenario and this whole story of here she is a female masochist and she doesn't know how to ask for what she wants. And that's what's led her to work, you know, in the brothel. She doesn't know how to ask for that in a relationship. Um, But I mean, also you have to look then, then let's go to the abuse issue because there are flashbacks to her as a child and you see that she was molested, sexually assaulted. And now there is something entirely different between sexual assault and like the rape fantasies that she's having, you know, because with the rape fantasies, she wants to be, a, you know, submissive in a situation, but it's, she wants, con, it, it's like consensual control. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's just like the huge issue like there. It's just like, that's what she, it, she needs to, she needs that to know that that exists and that, that she can have that and that she can gain happiness that way. She doesn't realize that. And And she's also, it's been so ingrained in her, this idea of you have to be, this is the other thing that I find really interesting about this movie of this kind of look at what uh, like gender roles, gender identity kind of is of what is a good virtuous woman supposed to be. And then, you know, and, and then when you hear like, like the cats, the the noises of the cats, which it's funny. I was watching this the other night 
<laughs> rewatching it for the first time in a, in a long time. Um, I had Zora Cat here laying on the couch with me, you know, and like all of the noise, the animal noises, particularly like the cats and like some of the bells, like really startled Zora. <laughs> like Zora is like looking around like what is going on? <laughs> like could not figure it out. Yeah. But, but you know, you hear those cat noises and cats are so very much, if you look at a lot of psychoanalysis and this kind of, I guess, some themes that have, did pop up throughout surrealism of, you know, Caring, I mean, you see it in, in cultures around the world, but uh, many of these artists would go to using cats as a way to express female sexuality and kind of the empowerment around it. Um, which is why, you know, hello, you get movie, you got movies in the, uh, you know, the 30s where the, you know, the cat people and, and it centers around a wild sexual kind of predator cat woman <laughs> hello um you know it's this kind of idea that's you know tied up in in their in the con in the subconscious where in, the, in these dream interpretations and like i said in all this psycho um analysis that but you see these scenes where these fantasy sequences where it's like pierre and hussein and you see like bulls and which have, you know, much more tied to and, and representative of like male sexuality, you know, in virility. And and so I, I think it's it's very interesting just to, you know, note that that, of course, that's something that I, you know, that Bunya would have in here. It's very it's unsurprising that he would interject those things. Sorry, I derailed you. No, again. that's fine. <laughs> I don't even remember what you're talking about. I'm sorry. It's all good. We've we've been not not exactly really close, but we've almost been talking about the movie for as long as the movie is. Oh, not quite. Well, not quite. almost. Okay, but anyway, so so I guess let's get to what. You wanted to talk about Marcel and who she, whatever, her bad boy that she escapes with at the uh, bordello. The thug. Yeah, he's, I don't know, he's got a partner and they rob people in elevators. And he's a dick. And it's, you know... It's the aside from her fantasy, you know, it's it's being abu uh, abused in real life because he takes off his belt because. Well, he was fucking stalking her. Yeah. Like, that's what gets me. He's fucking stalking her. <laughs> like, that's what, let's let's just do that. Let's put that down there to begin stalking with. Stalking her. He shows up at work ca causing trouble. He, yeah, sitting outside her apartment wanting to shoot her husband, you know, where have you been? Oh, I get, you know, just really, he's a, I don't like him. No, no. And, 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. He has a major chip on his shoulder. So it's someone you know that just has... Right, they're not capable of truly caring and giving of themselves. Not yeah. completely. Not completely. It's, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he wants her as a possession. He doesn't... She's got to leave know, work. But, but on the other hand, truthfully, Pierre, I mean, the way he treats Severin, and I think part of it, maybe she played... Does she play into it? Maybe a little, maybe not. But he kind of infantilizes her. And he puts her in such an impossible, like, up to this impossible standard, too, of, you know, it's it, it doesn't seem like, yeah, I mean, he just is like, okay, you're there to look beautiful and be by my side. And expect to wait on me at, you know, whatever my schedule and all this different stuff. I, I don't know. I mean, and, and then the question arises. Okay. Do you think they have ever had, like Pierre and Severin, have ever had sex? And if so, how many times? Because they've supposedly been married a little, or a year or whatever. Because they make some sort of reference to that about when they go the holiday at the beginning of at uh, at the skiing place, at the, at the ski place at the beginning of the film. Yeah, or like Newly, right after. Says something about newlyweds. Yeah, so. like they just—it's been—it's been a year. Like so, it's bright. It's like just been a year that they've been married. You know, I, I did think a little bit about that, or it crossed my mind. I guess that's the same thing, but uh, I didn't actively pursue it that much. But I do have some thoughts. I, part of me, mm -hmm. thinks that they have because if I was married to her, I probably would be spending a lot more time with her if I was still trying to have sex with her. <laughs> well, he, he <laughs> seems preoccupied. Yeah. Uh, you know, school or, you know, or all the stuff meeting with people trying to work his way up sure sure i get um, it but on the other hand also if it is that sort of you know i'm not ready yet then he's kind of just closed off he's like fine i'll focus on my career i love you here's our separate mm -hmm. beds um I, see now okay a lot of people think that they've never had sex but i disagree they had to have said had sex at least a few times, because he says something at one point. He asks her if she's pregnant. He says, like, I was hoping you'd say you were pregnant. Like, when she surprises him at the, like, at oh. work and, like, asks to go before she goes off to work at the brothel for the first time. He's, yeah. So I, I think it's they just haven't had sex much. Of course they didn't have sex before they got married. I totally think that. But I feel like it's had to have at least been, you know, maybe five times. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll give him at least, I'll give him at least that if over the course of a year. Yeah. 
so I, I really thought about this because I, 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 I was like thinking like, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I mean, sure, it was a prop. It was a, it was still a popular concept, though, at that time for married couples to have separate twin beds like that, though. That wasn't unpopular, con- an unpopular concept. You know, it wasn't completely foreign. So that's feasible. But on the other hand, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's still definitely a distance, you know, where, so that there, it can maintain this level of quote unquote chastity, but not complete. It's not completely chaste. Yeah. Zora agrees with that. <laughs> so. Well, then we have a consensus. Uh, sure. But, yeah, no, you're right. Marcel, total fucking asshole. Pierre, though, is he's just such a... Bleh. He's just such a plastic Ken doll. He's got the... You know, he's got this certain job as a surgeon it forms, and that affords them this certain lifestyle and, you know, and it allows these certain social circles and yada 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 but yet you don't really feel like he's engaged like emotionally with severing like it doesn't seem like he's trying oh yeah and i get being busy with work i understand that (laughs) i totally understand that um but on the other hand if they've been married a year he should be trying harder Usually you don't get to that point for at least a, <laughs> at least a couple more. <laughs> Consummate that relationship, Pierre. Do something. I mean, like, try to help her. I mean, yeah. Although, you know, if she just said, I, right now, I just cannot have sex, do not bring it up unless I say something, then good on him right. for, for that. But I don't know. Well, sure, of course. But no, you don't want him pressuring her. But then again, he's also just not emotionally engaged. That's what gets me. It's not even sexual. I'm just talking about the emotional level. He's not even there. Like when he thinks she's sick for a second, but it's going to mess up his dinner plans. Yeah, like he's just I feel like he's just checked out emotionally. That's what gets me is that I'm not even talking about just the sexual factor, because sure, you're right. Of course, you know, if she's saying, you know, I'm going through something right now, I got to deal. I mean, because I've had to do that in a relationship at a certain time, you know, because I was, you know, dealing with some things. But, you know, my partner was like, OK, that's fine. Whatever. I'm here for you. But was still emotionally engaged and was checking on me to see how I was doing. He's not. He's totally not. You know, I mean, he's really... And you feel like he's he's just kind of, I don't know, you feel like he's just kind of a wimp. Like a Ken doll. Right. I, yeah, you just feel like there's... Like you said. Like he's kind of, he's just, there's something cowardly about him where he doesn't have... I don't know. 
it's like maybe he sees, okay, this is my just my path in life or, or in my career, and that's what I have to do to go from point A to B. And I have this one, you know, a wife that looks like this and comes from this, you know, social class or whatever on my arm. And it doesn't matter our relationship. At least I have her on my arm. And maybe, you know, she can give it, you know, give me a couple kids and I'll fulfill this perfect image. And that, you know, we'll have, you know, whatever stone fence. Um, I'm not saying white picket friends, it's France. <laughs> you know, it's a little different. But the doctor dad life that he's got. But you know what out. I mean? It's still, you get what I'm saying. It's kind of like, yeah, it's just, it, we are fitting, we have to fit this perfect certain bourgeois image, you know, and she has to go to the club, you know, and play tennis in a certain outfit that looks this certain way and blah, 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 blah. She has to have these clothes that look this certain way. And, you know, and I love with the, you know, with what they do with the clothes where like that, that red, uh, ensemble that she's wearing at the beginning fantasy sequence, the opening one where it, we start seeing it where it pops up in her real quote unquote real life, you know, um, it's interesting when we start seeing little items of that kind of, you know, kind of carry over into, you know, back into from reality, quote unquote reality into quote unquote fantasy, you know? And that's really what, if you do consider those fantasies and dreams rather than reality, that is how a lot of people see dreams as oh you'll just have elements of reality pulled into your dream it's not that you would have real elements of your fantasies pulled into your reality like you have it the other way around you see did that make sense <laughs> maybe not <laughs> I don't know. yeah I, th I think so uh you know it's it's, it's good like to... Like Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, Nancy's pulling the hat out of the dream into reality. Okay? Or or so we think. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe not. You know? It's like, and where do Fred we stand? places her mom with a rubber doll so we can pull her through a window. Exactly. We don't know. Where, where's the... Is there a reliable narrator? That's is there a reliable narrator? Definitely and not Marcel. Right. No, he's <laughs> not reliable to even do a job right. Like and pay attention to his partner, like fucking asshole. Like he just, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, um, but did you, it, so anyway, do you have anything else to say before we wrap this up? Cause I feel like we're kind of wrapping up. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm good to move forward. Okay, so um, would you recommend it? Probably. I, I wouldn't tell everybody, like, you know, this movie is, it's, yeah, it's lazy to say, but this movie isn't for everybody. But if... That's true. You know, it, it's for for a fan of film or a fan of cinema, you should definitely check this out. Uh, like I said, I feel like I was told about this director in a film class, but didn't address this film. Mm -hmm. But it it's a good representation of solid filmmaking, 1967, you know, French, Spanish 
mm -hmm. surrealist cinema and yeah. Catherine Deneuve. Yeah. Yeah. This was still early in her career. I mean, she had, uh, I guess this is a year or two after she did umbrellas of Schoenberg and she had done repulsion, I guess a couple years before that with Polanski. Uh, but this was like, this really boot, like pushed her career into a whole other level. You know, and then nobody knew she would have the longevity that she, I mean, she's still acting and she still looks, oh, fucking beautiful. <laughs> I just, I gush about Catherine Deneuve. Um, yeah, there, by the way, you know, there was a, a lesbian magazine that came out named Deneuve, um, kind of due to her uh, iconic status in the lesbian community after partly the, the hunger but um yeah she uh any and so she i guess there was a, like a lawsuit <laughs> over it and so the magazine got renamed <laughs> because Catherine Deneuve didn't want her name to be on a lesbian magazine <laughs> yeah but other than that we still love her <laughs> yeah still she was in the hunger still think she's hot yeah maybe we'll do the hunger at some point um you know me and my lesbian vampires or queer vampires, excuse me. But if if I was telling She's gender, <laughs> but if if I was in a conversation about films and I was at that point talking to a person mm -hmm. who enjoys film, I would right. If it came to mind, I would suggest this to a type of person I'd be having a film conversation with. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. definitely you probably would since you suggested we do it. Yeah, well, but again, I, I know I couldn't recommend it to everyone. I know that not everyone wants one. Number one wants to read subtitles, and I don't watch this dubbed. Like, just don't. I saw I I, I went when I was watching the all the the uh, extras on the Criterion um, Blu-ray, which, by the way, it is worth the purchase and. Um, there is a Barnes and Noble Criterion sale on, I guess, going through like early August. So <laughs> if anybody wants it, I'm just saying it's worth it. Um, but there is a, a one, I guess they have their American trailers and they from that time period and they're dubbed. And you're just like, oh, God, no, <laughs> you're like, oh, God, no, 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 no. I was like, I'm so glad I didn't even watch. I just don't like watching dubbed films anyway. But that was one occasion where it was particularly just, <laughs> I guess, because you ha you do have some really talented actors in here, not just Catherine Deneuve, but some of the other people. And so it's kind of like, it's a, I like to hear those people's voices, their actual voices, so you can hear the expressiveness. Um, so that's why, yeah, I say no dubbed films. But anyway, yeah, I would recommend this, but I, I would, you know, of course, have to know who I'm recommending it to because not everybody, like I said, wants a foreign film, but to an art film, <laughs> let's call it what it is. Um, but I think it's still not so out there that it's like going to scare a lot of people off in that way. Um, I think it's still very accessible because... I think this, well, this is certainly more accessible than his earlier work. Uh, I mean, if you've ever seen Sean Angelou, 
it's very, you know, it has it like features like a slicing of an eyeball and like, uh, I don't know, some guy feeling up like a woman's naked breast and then like ants all of a sudden crawling everywhere. You know, it's all in black and white and it's, you know, 21 minute like short film. There's like, I think a car or bus accident or something, if I'm remembering correctly. And and that actually, funny enough, the last time I saw it, I found it on some, I found it last year on some free streaming service, service like on Roku, maybe like on Tubi TV or something like that. Um, and they put it under horror. And I'm like, I, I don't know if I really consider it horror, but maybe. <laughs> but still, like that is something that is so out there compared to this i mean this is yeah this has a much greater sense of continuity and and it shows his true development as a filmmaker too and to see what he's done with the source material and the way he expanded it and expanded this this character um and the ways he really he used it like i said a lot of this is in the book but he expands how, you know, the this attack kind of on this bourgeois class as, and, you know, and looking at these, you know, gender roles in society and kind of the sense of morality. He's examining it on a heightened level that the book doesn't have. But the book isn't, it still isn't bad, I'll tell you that. You know, it's a quick, trashy beach read more. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not long, but still, um, yeah. So, yeah, that was uh, Belle du Jour. And I guess we will take a break, and then we will be back with our actual book that we're supposed to be talking about. But it's not uh, a really long book, so don't worry about it. No, everybody. exactly, exactly. So, we will be back in a moment. In a world gone mad. As you know, the doomsday clock is a symbolic clock face analogizing humankind's proximity to extinction. One man must fight to survive on the global junkie of the future. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, damn you! God damn you all to hell! Which? Versus the Doomsday Clock is that man's story. His search for entertainment is transmitted across time and space for your listening pleasure on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and your Android device. This podcast is not fit for human consumption. Some effects include laughter, concern, nausea, vomiting, and burning for more purposes. The producers accept our responsibility for any side effects, illness, or event frank you might cause. My event guarantee is worth nothing. Zero, 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 uh, overall, not a sausage. In short, you get nothing. Nothing. Good day, sir. And so, yes, we are back. You might have heard drum talk. You might have heard recording talk. Maybe not. Maybe you were spared that. But we are back <laughs> with the book. For our episode, which was Shauna Kenny's 2002 book, I Was a Teenage Dominatrix, a memoir. The, this summary is from Google Books. 
rides shotgun with Shauna Kenny as she transforms herself from young, broke, and miserable to an educated, confident woman after answering one newspaper ad. Get paid for being a bitch. This award-winning tell-all comically chronicles Kenny's simultaneous navigation through a Washington, D.C. dungeon and academia. How do you feel about that summary? Um, yeah, I guess it's okay. <laughs> okay, as a, as a person I, who had never read this book before, how would you... I think that's, a, I, think that's a, I guess that's a fair assessment, but we'll get there. Okay. I'm not going to reveal all my thoughts yet on okay. this book, but <laughs> we'll get there. I would have just said, I, I have pitched this book to people, obviously, and I just said, it's a memoir. The, a girl that was into punk music wrote about working as a dominatrix. Things I can get behind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I had the opportunity to do that, but I did not. I have a friend, though, who ended up doing it. And yes, I talked extensively to her her and other um, different uh, people who work in a variety of aspects of the, like, as sex, work, sex workers. So I have thoughts. Yeah. All right. Good. I'm, and you know what? Yes, I had not read this before, but I am always hesitant when I hear the word memoir. Okay. Or read that. Because how much is fact, how much is fiction, and how much does it really matter? Okay. okay. I don't know. That's that's kind of where you I mean where the, I guess it depends on the story or what frame of mind you're in at the time reading it. I, I think for me maybe, but I still I'm always because we've heard so many stories when things have been published. Oh, it's a memoir or whatever. And you find out, oh, no, it's completely fictional. <laughs> and this person has said that, you know, this is a true experience. And in reality, it didn't. I'm not saying it didn't happen to her. But I take everything still with a grain of salt. <laughs> and I don't know if that means I can't enjoy things as much as I should. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Um Let's see. Sort of looking into because her. she was she was mostly a, like a creative nonfiction writer for counterculture magazines, you know, like yeah, skateboarding stuff and metal stuff, and right. She went to what? She went to American University. That's that's the college she was going to. That she was working herself or working her way through. And she's written three books and mm -hmm. a load of essays right um so yeah it's she even in the times that she talks about things that she wasn't proud of or whatever she mm -hmm. still puts herself in the best light possibly but that's i mean that's what it depends on if this was her diary right. and she ended up you know, publishing it sort of like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Jim Carroll did. There's, you, you know, weird scenes about, uh, 
he was he wasn't a dominatrix he he was a male prostitute at times to make money for his heroin habit but there would be times where he would right. get clients you right. know, he was a total stories. hustler at, he, yeah. he completely hustled for you know just for smack yeah we know yeah. <laughs> we so, know we know what it was <laughs> yeah so you know uh i've read this a couple times but i had read it after i had read jim carroll mm. so every right. time she tells a story about a situation that was freaky and she didn't want to do something or that was scary mm -hmm. i think of a couple specific ones from uh mm -hmm. pretty sure it's basketball diaries if not it's from living at the movies which was like the i think the the follow-up yeah i've read some of his stuff i don't know if i've read that one but um yeah i mean it's it's just <sighs> I don't know. I, I I ended up with a block where I kind of I found her a little annoying at times. Okay. And I don't know why. I and I know people get into sex work for all kinds of reasons. Okay. That's I mean, you know, but I mean, no one should be forced into it. Okay. But I'm of the frame of mind. It should not just legalization, but decriminalization. Absolutely. Um, it, it's ridiculous. That's that is. Yeah, that's just stupid that the way that people who work in that industry, you know, are prosecuted for something that just it's the oldest profession. We all know it, okay? In some form or another. Whether it's involving whips and chains or just, you know, crawling around on your hands and knees and being, you know, ordered to uh, clean up a mess with a, you know, a dust broom or, or dust mop or something. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether it's that or it's just complete, you know, missionary vanilla or you know, massage parlor, whatever, like, <laughs> you know, you know, dancing, peep show, whatever variety it is, it should all be fucking, like I said, decriminalized, not just le not just legalized. But anyway, that's my my thing I got to get out of the way first. But she, I feel like she comes into this so judgmental at times. And yes, we see her, of course, yes, of course, it's something that is new to her. We don't, I don't expect her to automatically be acclimated to everything, but, you know, she's not, I mean, you don't expect everyone who works. I mean, sometimes a job is a job. We all know this. We've all had jobs at time, one point or another that we did not like, or we found ourselves in a position that we were like, well, I need to pay rent, you know? And this is doing it right now, whatever that field of work may be. But so I know you don't you can go into this line of work and not be a kinky person. But I feel like she went into it with such a, 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 like a negative and kind of judgmental view of kinky people. I mean, when she does finally at the end acknowledge that, you know, like she's not kink shaming at that point, but you see it these other points along the way. And I don't know, like I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not expecting her to, because it's not her. I mean, I know it wasn't her world. So I, but I'm not expecting her to go in and be perfect, 
because she's, you know, just doesn't know it. But she, it just doesn't feel like she's being open-minded to begin with, <laughs> you know? Like, okay, this is the job, my job, and there are just certain things that I am out of my comfort zone, and, you know, I don't know. And the way she looks, classifications of, like, the, you know, the escorts or versus, you know, sex workers who are on the street, you know, and there are these classifications and like, so, and it is a social, you know, there's definitely kind of a this element of class, like the high paid escorts or something, which she, what she was doing was in these kind of kink things are much more high priced. Um, most of them are, you know, because they're so much more specialized, I guess, in the, the sex industry considered that way. Anything that deals with a fetish. Because mm-hmm. um, you're right. No, not every worker is going to do everything. Of course not. And even as a dominatrix, there's certain things, of course, she could still draw the line at. You know, she still had a certain element of control. But there was a certain amount that was like, oh, this is part of my job. Ugh fine, I'll do it, you know? Like, like I said, it's still work. Yeah. I don't know. And I, truthfully, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it was a writing style or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, this, uh, what, she published this when she was 28 or 29. Mm-hmm. So... Is it something more than this is what a 19 or 20 year old would be telling me about this? It's more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't put my finger on it. I read the book pretty quickly. I finished it, um, whatever, a couple weeks ago. And I just, there's something about it that I just can't, I still can't quite put my finger on and maybe, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it's because I'm an old lady. (laughs) No, (laughs) but maybe it's because I'm actually a kinky person and I don't feel like she does, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel, and I feel like someone like me would be dismissed if I came to, you know, pay, pay her for services. I almost feel like, you know, it, unless you'd be like, okay, I just want the money this day. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's like you, it's like, it's just the sense of you don't appreciate my, you know, me being a customer It's kind of, it's, it's the same way you want good customer service when you go to any kind of restaurant, store, anything. I'm sorry, but it it is if you're if you're dealing if you're dealing with a financial exchange for sex, you know, any kind of sexual service, it's still service industry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Especially since many of them aspects that deal with tips. You know, look at, you know, look at dancers. They deal with tips so much 
they're getting closer to like a you know minimum wage and then the, you know or even below they survive on tips it's you, there's a customer service angle that has to be worked um you know what i mean like it, I, but i still would feel like okay you still want as the customer like i know even if i'm being I mean, maybe that day I'm, <laughs> who knows, because, you know, um, I have a quite a wide range of uh, fetishes, but that's beside the point. I'm just going to say, we're not talking about that. We're not going into that whole, I already, um, we already let me go off on surrealism during this show. <laughs> and I kept that relatively short for me. We're not going to go down in the uh, kinky path completely, but what I'm saying is that I would feel that, okay, you don't, you know, you don't even appreciate, like, the money like, that I'm giving you, you know, that is being exchanged for this service. Like, I don't know. I can maybe understand at the very beginning because it is, it's how she might deal with something out of her comfort zone, okay? But I felt like it continued on way too like it it wasn't until almost like the end the very end of the book where she acted like oh no this is okay you you know what I mean like it was kind of like I think that's what bothered me okay you know what I mean it's I, again I don't expect her to from the you know initially be like fine and okay with everything because it is not her world but the the fact that she just I, I don't know we don't see any kind of uh, evolution on a like a larger like a larger scale like like a, the as the time seems to go on you know as she's talking about all of this stuff going and like time passing it doesn't seem like it goes on it doesn't seem like it happens I don't know it doesn't seem like that element develops it. It's maybe like she it she wrote it, but it was edited out. That's mm. almost what it seems like. It's there's something I, I think that I, you know what that's what it is. I think that there are certain things in here that feel like she started, and maybe it's her writing style, but I maybe not. Maybe it's an editing thing. Maybe that they felt that oh she needed to condense. Um, certain ver you know certain aspects of the life or whatever for timing purposes if they you know wanted okay we want this book under this length okay boom and you've got x amount of days to get it to us you know clocks running i mean i i have a friend who actually wrote a memoir what part of what um is in the book was a point like when I first met her actually when I lived in Cincinnati and so I know <laughs> at least my side of the story <laughs> on certain things right at least I can re rely on myself like in that and but she still has of course her voice but you see it and you're like okay yeah whatever it you know and as she is talking about different you can see certain things of how she, you know, had to cut down things in life or, or like, or in the, at least in life for the book, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to 
like condense a certain time period just to please her editors. So, you know, maybe it is an editing thing. But then again, maybe it's just a writing style. And if she's, you know, if she's someone who's write, who's mainly written magazine articles and short, you know, in these short essays, you know, maybe she's just not comfortable writing that long form. And this is still a short book, you know, it's what, not even a hundred fifty pages. Right. At least a. Let me see my copy. Oh, sorry, my copy is like. Yeah. Hi, cops again. Um, big go figure. My my copy is like hundred sixty pages. Yeah. Which, by the way, I got from uh. Like a used bookstore. It has notations. <laughs> Someone oh. had all these underlinings in pencil and then these notations. And it's really interesting to see what the person wrote. It's kind of funny. Eskimo. So, Eskimo. Oh, where's Otho, Reverend Otho, when you need him? That's I know. That's a call back I, to a long time ago. February. Uh, it's been a long few months. I don't know about you. No, and actually, what other episode? Yeah, we had another episode re- more recently where we were talking about him. Yeah, he's he's a recurring <sighs> character. But, yeah, um... it always comes back to him somehow. <laughs> anyway, um, but this book, what what did, what more did you have to say about it? Yeah, I mean, I you, mean, brought, it, you I, brought it to the table. Yeah, I I read it when it came out. Uh what did we say 2002 or 2000 you know i was 19 or 20 you know maybe 21 in that span of years it was first published in 99 okay 99 i was in high school so um i i was a lot more impressed with it the first time i read it than i am now uh but again uh, it, it's story that I just put up there with the best, not, not, a, not as good. I'm a, I'm, I'm a much bigger Jim Carroll fan. Uh, you know, well, there's something poetic about his language and his syntax. Yeah. And it's, that's why I, it, he, something with him reminds me much more of the beats and actually even an element of surrealist. Yeah. Well, he lived um, with Allen Ginsberg for a while. Right. That's exactly what I, I mean. It, so that's, and maybe that's why, um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Maybe it's a writing style thing too, but, um, I don't know. I, like I said, maybe it's an editing oh. aspect. Maybe there's, maybe there's an editing aspect too, yeah. because I just, some of it does seem a little too abrupt for my taste. You know, and maybe that's maybe that's just if she expanded more on certain situations, I would be happier. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But it, you know, like I said, it, it, you know, I did get I setting aside my annoyance of like the kink shaming thing, but um, I yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. One uh, book review I read of this uh, early on 
the writer, I can't remember the name of the writer, but mm-hmm. this is somebody else's word, said that the book is more Holden Caulfield in leather than it is Venus in furs. Oh, absolutely. And that, that line stuck with me. So it's very true. That the name didn't, but... Um... No, well, and consider, I mean, in Venus and Furs is much more my realm of literature. <laughs> Truthfully, yeah. with some of, like some of that, because like, I mean, that's, you know, I, it's why once I actually kind of started reading even Belle de Jour, uh, and I like literature from that time period, um, even not surrealist type things, but I started reading it and I'm like, no, I, it's an interesting story, but you could tell that, there, you know, yeah, it really, the film made it so much more than what was there, but there's something, you know, you could tell there's like an interesting, you know, bare bones, you know, this skeleton, um, but it really comes alive, like when Buñuel got his hands on it and something, and maybe if that happened with this story, if maybe it was adapted into a film or something, um, which, by the way, have you seen the Netflix series Bonding? Everybody I know that uh, is closer to that world says it. It's a it's a bummer the way things are depicted. Oh no! And which I knew. It was going to be, but I still was like, I'm actually curious to see what they think <laughs> and like what they portray. <laughs> like, so no, I like, no, I did not watch it. Sorry to to for, actually answer your question. Yeah, so I ended up watching whatever a couple episodes, and it, yeah, it's not no, it's not about that world, and I didn't yeah, I didn't feel um, from what I know of, um, but yeah, in. <laughs> I feel it's a it's but a lot more of a I personal like the, thing, huh? I, I even though I, I like I like the idea, and I feel like that idea that's there to some extent is in this book, which is why I say that maybe if this was made into a film, or even like some sort of like series, like limited like few episode series on you know Netflix or some Amazon, whatever, something like that. Maybe it would be a more interesting kind of thing when you could kind of flesh out. I mean, like, I mean, really, really. I mean, because it, it you really, it, it feels like, it, yeah, you need, you need a little bit more going on here with this story. Because she feels so, it doesn't seem like she makes such this massive transformation. Like, I don't know, when I was reading reviews of it. And all these people were, you know, acting like she's makes this massive transformation and all this stuff and yada, yada, yada. And of course it changes her and her outlook on things, but as it, of course it would, I mean, it's inevitable, but they acted like it's this, this massive transformative experience. And I didn't, I feel like it was written with in such brevity that you didn't, get to hear an explanation of was it really that transformative because it kind of didn't sound like it was that you know extreme (laughs) it really it just 
yeah, I don't know. It it could have used it, uh, some more world needed, building for you, or some more. Yeah, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's what it is. No. And like I said, maybe that I don't know if that's her writing style, or if it was an editing kind of issue, because I could see both. Yeah. This is the only thing of hers I've ever read, but mm-hmm. you know, uh... I'd I'd be curious to read like an like an essay or a you know a, an article in some magazine that she'd written. I, I really, um, truthfully, I think she could you know, I think she could do more with that kind of medium, something that's a little bit shorter, maybe. But maybe I'm wrong. No, I th- I think that's what she started doing. What well, I know that's what she was. I mean, from what I read about her, uh, it seems like that's more what she's worked in and more what she's comfortable doing. Yeah. But then again, maybe it's just also a case of people haven't given her a chance to get many you know novels <laughs> or anything published. <laughs> Who knows, right? It, I mean, it, yeah, it it's weird. I've had two uh, things that I had written as essays or articles for zines or something like that that somebody right. had suggested I try turning into a book. Right. And I will tell you, you know, there's one about, uh, yeah, just like being on tour in bands. Mm-hmm. And there was this other one where I uh, sort of for uh, journalism and for um, like folklore uh, classes, I, I followed and wrote about these uh, group of people that do flesh suspensions and stuff. Right. And that was one of the ones that the professor offered to help me work on but some stuff just isn't meant to be a book it should be a series of essays yeah. or a zine or mm-hmm. something like that but uh i'm not saying i dis. i still like this but i definitely was way well, more into this when i was mm-hmm. in high school yeah and i don't know maybe that's something that i don't know maybe would read differently than uh, read differently but when I was just, if I, if I were younger, because at this point I've read, well, I've, I've read a lot of smut in my day. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm very, I've always been very into literature uh, or books or short stories, whatever in the erotic realm, whether they are, fiction or nonfiction. Anais Nin is one of my favorite writers. And if we were truly going to go for a sexy book from the, you know, 1920s or 30s, I would go for one of hers and not Belle de Jour. <laughs> it's much, it's much sexier and much better written. I would think I honestly, um, just kind of the way she developed some of her characters. Uh, but and maybe that's because she's a woman, you know, and it, but so it's kind of interesting if, I don't know, I don't dislike this book. It's just, I wanted more, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, that's okay. Is what it is. <laughs> I don't know. I I I, th- I really I know certain people who would be into this totally. Okay, I guess that kind of brings us to the would you recommend it 
um, kind of a... yeah that, well this is a very conditional recommend for me um yeah okay because I, I i could see i could see a lot uh, just i i know i know a lot of people who would find this very unsatisfying as well not that they would hate it but they would be just because like honestly on like on goodreads i put it up and i rated it four out of five stars okay so i liked it well enough mm-hmm. but i just i still wanted more and that's you know, which kind of disappointed me. And I don't know if I had, I don't think my, I don't think I had put like some huge, like high, high expectations on it. I don't think that was it. I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, maybe I just can't put my finger on it. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, if you like reading essays and punk zines, um, you should check this out. Um, if you're younger than 30, <laughs> I, I'm more <laughs> likely to recommend this to you. Uh, if you're a fan of Shauna Kenny and somehow you're here, but you haven't read that book that, you know, that's well, how I, I heard of her. Well, but also I think maybe I'm not, like I said, I'm not a huge memoir like fan, like mm-hmm. style wise. Not that I, uh, I mean, like, I like autobiographies <laughs> and I like biographies, you know, that kind of thing. It, it, so I'm more into, I, I go more into, like, heavy-duty nonfiction, like, an autobiography mode mm-hmm. of someone, you know, or, but most memoirs, I'm not really into the style. And that might be also part of it for me. Yeah, because I am more but, into that stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, I read a lot of that and had a lot of writing workshops where you're basically reading people's memoirs over the course of a semester, you know, for creative nonfiction classes mm-hmm. and stuff. And, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I got more into that, you know, like the, and working for the folklore department at the college, yeah. at the, co- at the university. I've, I've been speaking to a lot of people from overseas lately. So I, Pause for yeah. a second about how I was going to call it. Yeah, what I was going to call it. But anyway. At university. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, and maybe be maybe at this point I have read way too much, um, made way too many books in the erotic realm, um, memoir included, mm-hmm. that uh, and about the, you know like sex industry that uh yeah that maybe i just also read i've just seen too many i'm not saying her experiences are not valid they completely are valid and of course everybody's going to have their own experience but and you know and there need to be more voices heard certainly from um sex workers because it's just, it is a legitimate industry. I mean, like, come on. It's a real fucking job. Literally. <laughs> I mean, so, like I said, sometimes it's not necessarily actually fucking, but, you know, it could be mental fucking. You get it's what I'm saying. at least a fucking real job. There we go. Thank you. Exactly. It's in fucking harder work than a lot of other people. Because mentally, yeah, there's a lot that you can, you can deal with. 
Cool. Yeah. So, so, but anyway, so, that, so that I, was... I mean, I'm glad it's out there, but I would definitely not recommend it to everybody. There we go. Yeah. Um, Let's take um one quick, one last quick break, and then we will be back to close out the show. Be right back. Right. If you enjoyed this show, then make sure you check out the other great shows on the Legion Podcast Network, like Cinema PsyOps, Cinema B, Devour the Podcasts. Duncan and Bo Come Correct, Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast, Friday the 13th, Get Slayed, The Hell Ming Power Hour, Hello, This is the Doom Show, Hero Hero Ghost Show, Kill the Cast, Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space, Jerry Hates Action, Legion After Dark, Mental Health, Obsessive Cinema, Discourse, Pick 6 Movies, The Podcast by the Cemetery, The Podcast on Haunted Hill, The Psycho Semantic Podcast, Rick Radio, House of Wax, Dude Looks Like the 80s, Rabbit and Red Radio, The Shadecast, Short Bus Cinema, Two Drink Minimum Commentaries, The VD Clinic, Who Will Survive Horror Podcast, and Witch vs. the Doomsday Clock. With such a widespread of shows, there is guaranteed to be a niche for you to fall in love with. Horror, politics, movies, books, sex, music, commentaries, health, video games, kaiju, action, news, comedy, and opinions that would most likely get you killed in some parts of the world. We are proud to bring you some of the best podcasting in the world. Check us out at www.legionpodcast.com, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and any other dark corner of the internet where podcasts can be found. And we are back. And okay, during our break, we actually um, got everything together and settled on um, settled on uh, what we're going to be doing in August. We, you know, we kind of were had been tossing around a bunch of different ideas, and we always try to do at the end of the summer something, I guess, a little more fun and uh, give ourselves a break. With we were doing like thinking about doing two movies again with no book. But then we and this one is something we've had on the back burner. Uh, this will be a pun in a minute. Um, we put it there for a while, and I'm sure it'll come up again. But we are going to uh, beat the heat okay. <laughs> with the um, with the theme of beat the um, beat generation, and um, with the film. Um, what film did we just decide on, <laughs> Darren? Uh, <laughs> you you pick the film. <laughs> we are going to be doing a 1997 movie called The Last Time I Committed Suicide, which is based off a book that Neil Cassidy wrote to Jack Kerouac. It's, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, okay, I'm going to um, eat my words and say I don't like memoirs, but no, <laughs> I only like them with reservations with the book I came up with, um, Memoirs of a Beatnik by Diane DePrima. Um, I actually picked it because, you know, there's so m one we don't hear the female beats. Uh, it's not that they weren't there and not that they didn't produce work, but a lot of times they kind of get, you know, pushed to the side um, out of that movement. Like women in so many other <laughs> in, in ancient Greece where the men are. Right. Yeah. Um, so. So anyway, I, I, I thought that um, I thought this was a good she, this is a good um story because you know these are but you see this kind of theme that goes throughout a lot of beat writing and where everything has this there's a sense of 
is is autobiographical in one way or another, or it has elements of, oh, this person that I know in my everyday real life. And it's kind of where, you know, like surrealism, the next generation, that's kind of, that's how I've, and maybe that's why I've always, I mean, that's for me, maybe just in my head, my association with the two, but it's also maybe why I'm drawn to that. But anyway, we will discuss more about that on um, the next big formal proper episode. But um, in the meantime, we will have um, in lieu of an August referral slip, it is going to be the uh, episode two of our Handmaid's Tale recap um, for the summer. It is um, we're recapping season three of Handmaid's Tale um, on Hulu. Um, we're going to be covering what episode? The next four episodes. So it's episodes six, seven, eight. Six, seven, eight. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Six, seven, eight. So um, we will be um, putting that out yeah, in between um, this episode and um, on our Beat the Heat episode. So I guess um, in the meantime, um, what what say you, Darren? Uh, Wait, what do you have going on? Anything else that you want to bring uh, up? Let's see. Well, yeah, we, we, we're getting some... Decent feedback on our first recap of Handmaid's Tale. I want to toss that out there. Um, but Great. Yeah, uh, coming... I might have said this last time, but you know how things mm-hmm. go. Coming up soon over at Psychosemantic is talking about the John Cusack movie Gross Point Blank with our dear friend the witch. Um, yes. And I recently... As of recording this, it's still out there now, but uh, past... Uh, guest of the show had a new book on the movie Tommy by The Who and Ken Russell. Yeah. And so uh, his book. I'm excited for that. So just did that. Those are probably going to be the last two on that feed. Mm -hmm. And yeah. But the VD Clinic, uh, thank you for, for listening. We're at VD Clinic Pod on most social medias and VD Clinic Podcast on Facebook. Yes. And if you're just Googling, please always put in that, you know, podcast or pod after the VD Clinic. Um, you know, you might go to uh, a different place, but um, we're sure you'll, you'll learn a thing of two. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And um, on that note, um, I am your Mistress Vanessa. You can lick my boots and I will talk to you next time, Darren. Uh, Yeah, I am. (laughs) I am Mr. Darren. I used to have handcuffs. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the VD Clinic. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at Twitter at VD Clinic Pod or reach us via email at VDClinicPod at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook group, VD Clinic Podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback, suggestions, and more.